Hi everybody, we're back uh, for the third uh, lecture uh, on Latin America, uh, chapter four in your textbook. And this slide is where we finished up. We were talking about the languages in the region. And we mentioned about how uh, the dominant uh, languages are the uh, European languages, particularly Portuguese in Brazil and Spanish in the uh, former Spanish colonies along the coastal areas of South America and in uh, Central America as well. And of course these are mixed with indigenous languages and even some African influences. So in this uh, third part of the lecture on Latin America we want to take a look at the uh, uh, geopolitics of the region as well as the economic geography. So uh, taking a look at the uh, geopolitical framework um, as you, uh, as I'm sure, as, as I've been mentioning, uh, this area was uh, the first area actually colonized by uh, by Europeans. Uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, and he landed in on the island Hisp of Hispaniola. And from that uh, time on, other Spanish and Portuguese explorers uh, came to this uh, part of the world. Uh, and it's actually interesting that uh, the world was uh, divided. Uh, by the uh, Treaty of Tordesillas in uh, 1493. And the Treaty of Tordesillas was a, uh, a, a charter uh, that was given by the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church that led to the division of Latin America into Spanish, the western part of the region, and Portuguese, the eastern part of this region. The Portuguese initially had little interest in Brazil, um, but then uh, they began to develop extensive sugar estates and, slave, and the slave trade really began to uh, pick up in, after the 16th century, largely because most of the indigenous population was being wiped out through disease, warfare, starvation, and so forth. The Spanish, on the other hand, aggressively uh, uh, conquered this area and, and uh, settled this area uh, that it, where it held territories. Um, development of silver mines uh, really uh, was uh, very important for the Spanish. Um, and sending uh, silver back to uh, back to Spain, back to the continent, and of course the promotion of agriculture largely through uh, cattle ranches and so forth. Uh, manufacturing in this region was largely forbidden by the by the uh, European colonizers. So, uh, as I mentioned, the Treaty of Tordesillas uh, really divided this area, and you can see from this map Latin America in 1650. You can see the Viceroyalty of New Spain. Uh, which was uh, very much in the northern part of the regions, uh, up into uh, the southeastern and even the south central, southwestern part of what is today the United States, obviously down through um, what is uh, today Mexico and then down into uh, Central America, countries like Guatemala, Nicaragua, and so forth. And then we had the Viceroyalty vice of uh, New Peru, which was the uh, Spanish holdings in the southern part of the, uh, in, in South America, uh, along the coastal areas down into Argentina and so forth. And then you can see Brazil uh, in this region uh, uh, controlled by the Portuguese as well. And then in, by 1830, you can see that much of this region had gained its independence for the, from its colonial powers. And you can see the various years, Brazil, for example, gained its independence in 1822, Mexico, 1821. Uh, and then um, other areas, uh, uh, not necessarily as we view the countries today, we had the United Provinces of Central America, 
eight, that it was in existence from 1823 to 1839. Uh, Grand Colombia, which include, included uh, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, and uh, Ecuador um, from 1890, 1819 to 1830. Peru, and so forth. And these borders, of course, have changed over time through a variety of different conflicts and so forth. So uh, as we talk about revolution and independence, the Spanish authority was challenged in the 19th century. Many revolutionary movements uh, between 1810 and 1826. Most modern states of Latin America were formed during this period, although the borders have changed quite a bit. Uh, we do see uh, persistent border conflicts in this region. One of the reasons, as I mentioned before, that, uh, for example, Brazil, uh, Peru, Ecuador, and so forth are encouraging people to move into the more remote areas of the country is so that they can solidify their national borders in some of these more remote areas. Um, territories, as you can see from the map, were not clearly de demarcated uh, in the, de at the early uh, independence, uh, and so these uh, conflicts have remained through the 19th and 20th centuries. There has, however, been a trend towards democracy throughout this region. Now, when I was in school, um, you know, uh, especially when I was in uh, high school and I guess even up through uh, you know, my early college years and so forth, uh, and I'm just going to say through the 1960s, 1970s, and even into the 1980s, uh, there was a lot of political turmoil in Latin America. Uh, there was a lot of governmental change, a lot of dictatorships, uh, a lot of military coups, and so forth, as, as uh, people became dissatisfied with their governments and how they were, you know, the, their uh, economic outcomes and things like that. Uh, it seemed like Latin American governments were changing constantly through a variety of different coups coup d'etats and things like that. Uh, but since the mid-1880s uh, in particular, it seems like uh, things have really begun to stabilize, and there's been a real trend towards democracy throughout the region. Uh, most countries have been, as I mentioned, most of these countries in this area have been independent for almost 200 years uh, now. Um, political instability has been, uh, has been a defining feature in the region. Since the 1980s, as I mentioned, uh, trend has been towards more democratically elected uh, governments and really the promotion of free trade uh, and free markets throughout the region. Many countries exhibit ongoing popular frustration with failing in falling incomes and rising violence, uh, particularly in um, some of the uh, uh, squatter settlements in, in some of the countries, particularly Brazil and Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo. Uh, really, there's been a lot of violence in those areas. Um, violence associated with drug trafficking, particularly in places like Ecuador and Peru and, and things like that. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a few minutes. Uh, so a lot of violence, a lot of corruption, a lot of unemployment that has really led to a lot of dissatisfaction. But fortunately, many Latin American governments uh, appear to be on a more uh, stable path than what they have been in the past. So we talk about uh, this notion of supranational organizations. I mentioned free trade, and that's the result of free trade blocks. Um, uh, the organization of American states seems to be um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the largest uh, organizations that uh, try to unify and promote the, uh, 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 the interests of the, of the entire region. 
and the Organization of American States was uh, started in 1948, as I mentioned. It promotes a neutral Pan-American uh, Pan vision of hemispheric cooperation, reaction against political and economic dominance exercised by the United States throughout the region. And you can see some of the other uh, trade blocks or trade organizations throughout the region that try to promote um, uh, free trade and uh, trade uh, within the region. So we have uh, CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade uh, Association, Mercosur, mostly in the southern part of the region, uh, NAFTA, North America Free Trade Association, which, uh, which does include the United States, and, uh, uh, and, and so forth. So um, uh, the Latin American Free Trade Association, which, yeah, as you can see, excludes the United States. Uh, so we also have uh, other, uh, as I mentioned, other organizations in the, in the region. The regional trade, uh, these regional alliances uh, foster internal markets and reduce trade barriers between the countries. Uh, and I've already mentioned some of them, Latin American Free Trade Association, Central American Common Market, the Andean Community. In the 1990s, Mercosur uh, formed uh, originally uh, uh, with Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay, and North America Free Trade uh, Agreement, composed of Mexico, the United States, and Canada, was established. Uh, was established in 2004. The Central American Free Trade Agreement was signed by the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Costa Rica and combined uh, these trade blocks and agreements significantly impact the political economy of the region. Another thing that we want to be, uh, another group of organizations are these subnational organizations, largely based on ethnicity, ideology, and so forth, um, also based on, on uh, uh, and when we talk about ethnicity, that could be, uh, for example, the Zapatistas in the southern part of Mexico, indigenous organization, uh, we can talk about uh, the trade, or I'm sorry, the drug trade and so forth, and the drug cartels that control territories uh, throughout uh, throughout parts of this region as well. So political insurgencies and violence associated with drug trafficking characterize many countries in the region. Uh, the United States has, act has actively been involved in counter narcotics operations in Central and South America. Um, and a lot of people argue that the United States actually has ulterior motives for being uh, in these areas, not necessarily just to fight the drug dealing and drug trafficking and so forth, uh, but um, to try to influence the political outcomes in many of the countries in these regions. Indigenous groups, uh, many indigenous organizations have been formed to protest neoliberal policies and globalization. I mentioned Zapatistas in southern Mexico. Uh, the involvement of these groups reflects both a deepening of democracy and the emergence of ethnically driven politics uh, throughout the area. So you can see here we have the Colombian National Police, uh, uh, you know, and uh, this is probably U.S. plane uh, spraying uh, uh, narcotics in the in the region, whether it be poppies uh, for. Uh, for opium or uh, the cocoa plant for cocaine, or in some cases marijuana, um, in an effort to kill those plants so that they uh, can't be traded. It, it's very going to be very difficult to get the farmers to grow something else because these crops bring such a high profit 
uh, for the farmer, then it'll be very difficult to get them to substitute something else for this, uh, for, uh, to grow in these areas. Uh, and of course, a lot of this area is, in, is controlled by a, a variety of different uh, uh, groups. Um, ELN, for example, is one of the groups in, in Colombia. FARC, is, uh, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, is another group that controls large territory and so forth. Um, so you can see in the map here areas of uh, coca cultivation, largely on the east side of the Andes Mountains, uh, because this area does receive uh, sufficient rainfall. Uh, to be able to grow uh, these different types. And where you see coca growing areas, this is also areas that are very often controlled by some of these insurgent, insurgency groups as well. Uh, let's move on and talk about some of the economic and social development in the region. Uh, most of Latin American countries are classified as middle income. Economic disparities between and within states remain. Brazil and Mexico are the economic engines of the, of the region. Uh, Bolivia is among the region's most impoverished states. Um, and again, largely, uh, Bolivia has a large indigenous populations and population, um, and very often indigenous populations are discriminated against and don't have the same opportunities. Uh, I had mentioned the informal sector in the region uh, uh, a, a while back, and you can see this is part, would be considered part of the informal sector. Uh, these are indigenous women, obviously selling fruits and vegetables on the street uh, that they bring in from the uh, rural areas into the cities and, and so forth. Oil production is becoming an important uh, industry in many parts of Latin America, particularly in places like uh, 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 Ecuador and, uh, and uh, Colombia and so forth, where they have uh, some offshore drilling, but also in the interior of some of these countries, uh, as we'll see, in an upcoming map, there's been a lot of land leased to uh, the large transnational oil companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, and so forth. Um, they're drilling for oil, and then they pipe it to across the mountains uh, in, uh, to the uh, uh, to the coastal areas where it's loaded on uh, ships and sent uh, sent off for uh, refining and so forth in places like the United States. Venezuela is another area that uh, has a lot of oil production. As a matter of fact, the United States receives uh, a lot of it, a, a significant amount of its imported oil from Venezuela in the Lake Maracaibo uh, area of Venezuela. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I'll refer to this image in a few minutes. Uh, this would be a, a Maquiladora factory uh, along the coast or along the border area of uh, Mexico and the United States. Uh, so beginning in the 1960s, um, uh, multilateral agencies such as the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank promoted large-scale development projects throughout the area. Green Revolution technology was promoted in agriculture and other modernizing modernization programs. Many countries in the region exhibited more economic diversification um, than uh, I'm sorry. Many countries in the region exhibited uh, economic diversification. In the 1990s, most Latin American governments adopted free market policy reforms termed the Washington Consensus. We could also refer to it as the neoliberal consensus, neoconservative consensus, however you want to think about it. Many of these neoliberal reforms were highly unpopular, leading to political and economic unrest throughout the region. 
industrialization since uh, the 1960s, most governments has emphasized uh, manufacturing, and there's been considerable growth uh, throughout the region in uh, manufacturing, and it's been fueled by investment from foreign companies. Uh, and so as you can see, uh, particularly in this particular image, General Motors factory in Mexico. Um, the Maquiladora factories, as is exhibited in this photograph, are assembly plants located in Mexico. These factories manufacture an assortment of products, including automobiles, consumer electronics, apparel. While providing employment, these have been critiqued because of low wages, high labor turnover, lacks health and safety regulations, and, a la and lacks environmental regulations as well. And you'll find most of these factories located right along the border with the United States so that they can take advantage of the uh, large market that the United States uh, has to offer. So cities like Ciudad uh, Juarez, uh, uh, you'll, uh, you'll find uh, these sorts of factories. Um, the emergence of maquiladoras associated with border industrialization program was initiated in the 1960s, and obviously this promotes export-oriented products heavily dependent upon foreign investment. So it's not just U.S. firms that have located here, but also Japanese firms, South Korean firms, and other firms have also located factories here. So I mentioned the informal sector. Uh, includes uh, things like street vending, transportation services, you know, the, the taxis that just, uh, you know, pop up out of nowhere, garbage picking, scavenging, and, and people turn those products into, you know, the things that they can scavenge and the products that they can sell, street, uh, street performing, drug trafficking, prostitution, money laundering, and so forth. Um, Many economies of the region are heavily dependent on the informal sector. The widespread existence of an informal economy is an indicator of Latin America's poverty. So uh, talking about uh, the primary on export dependency, uh, dependence on the export of raw materials, including minerals and agricultural products. Many countries are heavily dependent on one or two. Uh, export products, and between 1980s and 1990s, many countries diversified their economies uh, because when you're dependent on just one or two products, uh, what happens is that you, uh, if the price of those products declines, then you find yourself uh, losing revenues and so forth. And especially if you take out loans, which is what happened in, in uh, many Latin American countries during the 1970s and 1980s, when the prices for commodities uh, uh, many of the, the uh, raw materials that these countries exported were, had very high prices, and so they took out loans to improve infrastructure, health care, education, things like that for their populations. But then the prices of those products um, dropped very substantially uh, in the 1980s, and uh, many of these countries found themselves unable to pay back the loans that they had taken out. So agricultural production in the region overall trend has been to diversify and mechanize agriculture. The prime example is the Plata Basin and the production of soybeans. Uh, uh, mechanized, mechanized agriculture is contributing to the elimination of forests and savanna and is pushing out subsistence-based uh, peasant farmers as well. We also have mining and forestry. The extraction of silver, zinc, copper, iron ore, bauxite, and gold is an economic mainstay of the region, and quite frankly, it has been for quite some time. Uh, mining is mostly, 
but it's mostly becoming more capital intensive uh, and less and less labor intensive. Um, gold mining, however, is the exception to that. Logging has led to many environmental problems, as we talked about before. Plantation forests are increasing, contributing to a process of deforestation of native species. And looking at the energy um, sector, Mexico, Venezuela, and Colombia, as I mentioned before, uh, are, uh, are important oil producers and import a lot of oil to the United States. Venezuela and Bolivia have significant reserves of natural gas, and Brazil has invested in ethanol production. So you can see here, this is um, in, uh, on the uh, eastern slopes of the Andes Mountains, for example. We have uh, lots of uh, areas that have been leased out, as I mentioned, to multinational oil, co oil corporations for the exploitation of the oils and uh, the, the oil that oil reserves in this area. And you can see even over here in Brazil, uh, some of it has been leased out. So um, these are different uh, concessions that have been made to oil companies and so forth. Um, and so we have competing geographies here for, um, you know, obviously oil, but also agricultural products as well as the illegal uh, products such as uh, uh, coca and uh, poppies and marijuana in the region as well. So Latin America and the global economy. Uh, Latin America clearly is an important player in the global economy, whether it be uh, through the export of uh, raw materials, energy products, or even uh, illegal products such as drugs. Um, and there's been a variety of different ways to think about Latin America and the global economy. One of those uh, th ways is the uh, dependency theory. This is a theory that was developed in the 1960s. It argues that the expansion of the European capitalism created underdevelopment, created underdevelopment of the region, uh, Latin America, uh, not just Latin America, but also other peripheral areas of the of the uh, of the global economy. Uh, and these uh, peripheral countries became impoverished through their dependence on the prospering core core countries, uh, Western Europe. North America and so forth, through unequal trade relations and patterns. Dependent countries were highly vulnerable to fluctuations of the global economy. So when the global economy in the United States and North America would go into recession, uh, it would immediately impact these countries as well. Adherence to dependency theory promoted self-sufficiency, growth of internal markets, agrarian reform, and vigorous state intervention in the economy. Many Latin American states are still dependent upon foreign countries, especially the United States. Both trade and foreign investment are important connections uh, for many of these countries. Uh, Latin America, as we noted before, is uh, linked to the global economy through immigration and remittances. Um, and then we can also talk about neoliberalism as uh, globalization. Neoliberal policies stress privatization, export production, direct foreign investment, and minimal restrictions on imports. Neoliberalism epitomizes globalization by turning away from self-sufficiency and state intervention, uh, as uh, dependency theory argued for. Many Latin American governments have embraced neoliberal policies. Uh, Chile is really a country that uh, should be uh, is especially notable in accepting neoliberal policies. Many uh, Latin American countries have uh, started to turn away from neoliberal policies, particularly countries like Ecuador, Brazil, uh, and so forth. As, um, as um, indigenous uh, presidents have come to power, 
and they've started to recognize that neoliberal policies really threatens their economies, the long-term sustainability of their economies, uh, largely because of the unfair uh, trade uh, uh, that they uh, experience with the United States. The United States gets to set the rules, and obviously the United States is going to set the rules in their favor. Dollarization is a process by which a country adopts uh, in whole or in part the U.S. dollars as official currency. In 1904, Panama dollarized its economy, Ecuador, Ecuador dollarized its economy in 2000, and El Salvador followed in 2001. This process is supposed to address the currency devaluations and hyper hyperinflation in these countries. A country that adopts dollarization no longer controls its own monetary policy and becomes dependent on the U.S. Federal Reserve. It may help in the short term, but it is not a popular policy in many countries throughout the region. So you can see in these images here, you know, this is uh, Sao Paulo, which is uh, a center of trade and finance in Latin America. And of course, this is the Panama Canal. Uh, where a lot of the uh, global trade passes through. Looking at the social development in the region, uh, marked improvements in the last several decades in things like life expectancy, child survival, and educational quality. Both government policies and grassroots and non-government organizations have contributed to improvement in social well-being. Examples include Brazil's poverty reduction uh, program. There is, however, significant spatial variation in well-being, uh, in well-being uh, that it becomes very evident. All countries have spatial in inequities regarding income and availability of services. Race and uh, race uh, seems to be a, uh, a major factor in uh, levels of inequality. Both ethnicity and race, particularly in Mexico and Brazil, augment economic and social inequalities throughout Latin America. Amerindians or Native Americans and persons of African ancestry are among the most economically and socially marginalized. There is an emerging middle class within the region with its own aspirations. And so what we have here, as you can see, we have a map of um, women's role in politics. Uh, women have, uh, it's a real contradiction within Latin America. Many Latinas find employment in the labor market participate in politics and have access to education and family planning. However, patriarchal tendencies remain and when women's participation in economic, social, and political activities remains significantly lower than men's participation. And you can see uh, percent uh, seats held by women in national parliament. You can see, for example, in Brazil, uh, a very small number. But as you, you see in some of the former Spanish colonies, uh, there's a much better uh, uh, participation of women in, in at least at the federal level in politics. Whoops. Sorry, I jumped ahead there. So um, this is uh, Evo Morales, president. Uh, this is Lula da Silva, the former president of uh, Brazil. And, and I'm sorry, but th this is the mayor of Sao Paulo, but her name escapes me now, uh, which I'm sorry. So anyway, um, let's look at some of the social development in the region. As you can see, uh, the GNI per capita, most, as I said, most of the countries are considered middle income countries, and you can see uh, that that's the case. 
once again, uh, unfortunately, many of the countries with a large proportion of indigenous populations uh, find a relatively low GNI per capita. Uh, this is our GDP uh, average growth rate, and you can see most of these countries are growing uh, pretty well uh, from 2000 to 2008. Uh, of course, like many other parts of the world, they've been impacted by the global economic recession that occurred uh, uh, late 2000 and 2008. Uh, human Development Index, most countries rank fairly good on this uh, Human Development Index. Uh, people living on less than $2 a day, remember that's the UN's measure of poverty and you can see, uh, again, uh, if we would pick out the countries with large indigenous populations, uh, these would be uh, uh, rank, uh, the indigenous populations would rank pretty high uh, with a proportion of people living on less than $2 a day. Life expectancy in 2010, you know, are, are very good uh, for the most part. As you can see, uh, under five mortality has improved throughout much of the region between 1990 and 2008. And then our gender equity uh, throughout the region seems to be pretty good as well. So um, just to summarize this region of the world, Latin America, and if we'll be talking about the Caribbean uh, in, the, in our next uh, set of lectures. Uh, this was really uh, the first region of the world, as I mentioned, to be colonized by Europe. In the process, approximately 90% of the indigenous population uh, died. Um, the slow demographic recovery marked by considerable immigration has resulted in a complex society of ethnic and cultural hybridity. Unlike most other developing regions, Latin America is highly urbanized. Cities combine, uh, cities combine elements of both formal and informal economies, as we uh, saw. Compared to Europe and Asia, this region remains well endowed with natural resources. It also has a lot of environmental problems, such as deforestation, and also uh, urban environmental problems as well, with pollution and, and subsidence in Mexico City and other sorts of urban uh, problems. Uneven development and economic frustration have contributed to emigration as people have left the region. Latin American governments have widely adopted neoliberal policies. Some governments have faltered in their attempts and popular protests have resulted. New political actors, including indigenous groups and women, have emerged uh, throughout the region. So that finishes up uh, the discussion on chapter four in Latin America. And so next we'll be taking a look at the Caribbean.